Shalom, friends. I'm Blake Barbera, and you're listening to That You May Know Him. In our series, Beginnings, my co-host and I, Kevin, have been going through two different books of the Bible simultaneously, the book of Genesis and the Acts of the Apostles. We've been looking at the beginning of creation and the beginning of new creation, or the church, hence the series called Beginnings. In our previous two episodes, we've been in Acts chapter 5, where we looked first at the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and then in our last edition of Beginnings a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of the apostles being arrested for preaching the good news of the gospel and winning souls into the kingdom. Oh, they also happened to be performing amazing, powerful miracles in Jerusalem at the same time. Now, normally we would continue on to Acts chapter 6, or we would flip back over to Genesis. But I thought it would be fun for this episode to zoom out and look at Acts chapter 5 as a whole. You see, at first glance, when you zoom out, it seems like this chapter of the Bible is just you know, a bunch of narratives kind of strewn together, like ingredients in a pizza, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I like my Italian sausage with my jalapeno peppers. But when you look closer, I think there is an an incredible lesson that can actually be gleaned from the assemblage as a whole. What can Ananias and Sapphira teach us about having the right, healthy kind of fear? That might sound like a contradiction. Do Ananias and Sapphira teach us about the right kind of anything? (laughs) Maybe not. Aren't they an example of what not to do and how not to be? They certainly are in some ways. Ananias and Sapphira, for those of you that need a little refresher, were struck down by God because of their greed and deceitfulness. At a time when the church was completely pure and unadulterated by sin, Ananias and Sapphira reintroduced selfish ambition and wickedness into the equation. They decided to put themselves forward. And they cared more about the praises of men than they did about actually honoring the God who had saved them. As a result, the whole congregation of the church saw the wrath of God poured out on them. The story apparently ends in Acts 5 verse 11 with this statement, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. But is that really where the story ends? I don't think that it is. You see, the original Bible was not broken up into chapters and verses like ours is today. When Acts was first written by the disciple Luke, likely overseen by the Apostle Paul, it didn't feature any chapter and verse markers. There can be little doubt that what comes before the story of Ananias and Sapphira at the end of Acts chapter 4, it's a quick aside about how generous the early church was with their resources, including a man called Barnabas, 
who sold a field and gave the money to the apostles for the work of the ministry. These stories, this story that comes before the story of Ananias and Sapphira is just as much a part of the Ananias and Sapphira story as what comes after it. These stories were not meant to be read individually. They were meant to be read in conjunction. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is a part of what comes before and after it in the book of Acts. It makes sense when you look at the story of Barnabas at the end of Acts chapter 4. He was generous. He was not deceitful. He was actually willing to give all of his resources to honor God. And for that reason, the church held him in high esteem. Ananias and Sapphira wanted that same type of esteem, but they didn't want to sacrifice all of their resources in order to get it. Thus, we see greed and deceitfulness in their lives. What comes after the story of Ananias and Sapphira doesn't on the surface seem to flow as well with the narrative that Luke is painting. It seems sort of broken up when you just read it surface level. Because what comes next is a story of the apostles continuing to preach and perform miracles in Jerusalem. It's kind of like, hey, Luke's just giving us Again, just some random ingredients. Here's a few random stories of what was going on in the earliest days of the church, just so, you know, you get a grasp. But actually, these two stories are meant to run perfectly with one another. And there is a lesson for us to learn from the pericope as a whole. Let me read you the next two verses that follow the conclusion of the Ananias, the supposed conclusion of the Ananias and Sapphira story. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico or in Solomon's porch. None of the rest dared join them. But the people, the people of Jerusalem, held them, the apostles, in high esteem. Just so you know, Solomon's porch is an area that was a common public area in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. This is a place where everybody, all Jewish people, could have and would have been congregating and more or less hanging out. So just a quick recap. Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by the Lord for their deceitfulness and greed. And Acts 5.11 says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Then the next thing we read is that the apostles continued doing the powerful evangelistic work they were called to do after this little hiccup with Ananias and Sapphira. But there's this one little fact that's thrown in there, and it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. The rest of the church refused to join them in their work. I'll read it again. Acts 5.13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, that being the people of Jerusalem. The question is, what was motivating this refusal? What was making the other disciples of Jesus, the new converts to the faith, the members of the church who were not part of the 12 apostles, 
What was making them afraid to step out in faith and follow the example of the apostles? I think the answer is right there in front of our eyes. We already know that they had just watched two disciples, two new believers in Jesus, drop dead because of their greed and deceitfulness. We already know that the fear of the Lord had fallen upon the entire church. After watching two new converts who seriously misstepped and reintroduced sin into the church drop dead, is it crazy to think that you and I might be a little mm, hesitant to step out? A little leery about, "Mm, I don't really want to say or do the wrong thing. Now, look, I'm not saying that this was the right response. I think that the example of the apostles was the exact right response. But I also think that it's understandable that some of the disciples might have been hesitant to keep moving forward with their new work. All that said, again, the example of the apostles, I believe, is spot on. This is the type of fruit that the fear of the Lord, a healthy rightly aligned fear of the Lord is meant to bear. The fruit that we see being born in the lives of the apostles. You see, a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord is always rooted in the fact that God is sovereign. What does that mean exactly? It means this. God is powerful to the point that he is more powerful than every other power that exists, whether it be human power or divine power. He is powerful and authoritative to the end that he can override all other authority and all other power. That is what it means that God is sovereign. And that's what the word means as well. Does it mean That everything that happens in life, in the world, is God's will? I don't believe that it does. Just like not everything that happens in a kingdom is the exact direct will of a sovereign. But a sovereign does have full authority and full autonomy in and over his kingdom. And in the case of the Lord, he's a sovereign who happens to be omnipresent and omniscient. But does it mean that everything that happens is at least within the purview of God, at least allowed by him to happen? Is that what God's sovereignty means? Yes, that's exactly what it means. Why is this important? And what does this have to do with the fear of the Lord? Great question. Ultimately, fear is the greatest form of worship that we can offer. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what? Huh? Fear is the, is the highest form of worship, the greatest form of worship that we can offer? But I thought, I thought perfect love casts out fear. Doesn't it say that somewhere in one of John's epistles? It does. And that's true. Perfect love does cast out fear. But let me tell you a secret in all of this. When you learn to fear the Lord the way you are called to fear him, Your surrender to him will be perfected and transformed into a white, hot love of God and for people 
that is unquenchable. When you put God in his proper place by acknowledging that he is the only, the one and only true sovereign, and you couple this understanding with the fact that God is good and he is for us, he is for his people, and he has our best intention, our greatest end in mind. When you put these two things together, God is ultimately the power and the authority that deserves all of my worship, and he's over all the others. God is God, and he's for us. He's good. When you put these two things together, your love will be perfected. You will have arrived at the place where you trust God no matter what. You're not looking for a certain outcome all the time. You're truly a vessel that can be filled and poured out by him for his holy purposes. All that being done, by the way, in intimate, sweet, amazing, wonderful fellowship where he's giving you peace and joy that never leave you. Fear is worship because the one that we fear is the one who we ultimately believe determines our outcome. If you fear a car accident, if you fear cancer, I'm just throwing out some examples. If you fear someone breaking into your house and robbing them, what you're saying is that you ultimately believe that that thing or that disease or that event or that person has some sort of power over you above and beyond the power that God has to protect, to preserve, to guide, guard, govern, and determine your final end. Now, having said that, let's take this back full circle to the fear that was on the disciples and how the apostles modeled a healthy, righteous, rightly aligned fear of the Lord that freed them, that freed them to be poured out for the sake of others. Let me read you how this story ends, beginning in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to read all the way through verse 32, by the way. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. I think that means they put them in prison publicly, like for all to see. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now then, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. 
Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, let's recap this and let's wrap this up real quickly. We know that the Bible teaches us to honor all authority of men for the Lord's sake. That's Romans chapter 13. All authority says, the Apostle Paul says, Scripture. All authority has been put in place by God and is to be respected by us unless it contradicts, challenges, or opposes God's authority. The Apostles are perfectly in line with this. We must obey God rather than men, they said. But the amazing thing about the apostles' obedience to God was that it came with their full acknowledgement, with their full acceptance that in this situation, they could very well be left in the hands of men, in the hands of the authorities, if that were God's will. How do we know? Because the angel told them to go and do exactly what the authorities told them not to do. They did not blink. They did it. When they were arrested again and beaten, they left, verse 41, the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. These were a bunch who were willing to follow their master no matter the cost, at all costs. These were the ones who had learned to follow in the example of the Lord himself. The same spirit that was inspiring the apostles was the same one that would later inspire the words, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29 And also this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are reviled and who suffer on account of me. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's from the Gospel of Luke, by the way. Jesus, along with the disciples, knew that God was the ultimate judge 
the ultimate juror, the ultimate life giver. If we learn to fear him rightly, with a rightly aligned, healthy kind of fear rooted in righteousness and love, and we actually learn to believe this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of eternal life, we will learn to fear him and no one else, nothing else. He will quench and quench all other fears in us. We will place our lives fully in his hands and trust him with the outcome, the fruit, the consequence of it. The fact of the matter is that God often uses the suffering of his people to win more people, more souls into the eternal kingdom. It's true. A lot of Western Christians don't want to hear it because they don't like the idea of suffering. But if you actually read the Bible, like actually read the whole thing, and don't just cherry pick the parts you like and only stay in those lanes, you will see that we are called often to suffer for the name and that God uses it for his purposes. He uses it to win people into the kingdom. That's why it's so important. That's why we're We're encouraged time and time again in Scripture by Jesus and the other biblical writers. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake. Rejoice when you're reviled and ridiculed for the sake of the name. When they see that the reality of our faith is so real that it transcends even our natural lives. There's no more powerful witness. When the world sees that the reality of our faith is so real that it transcends even our natural lives, our comfort in this life, there there is no more powerful witness than that. So to close it all up, the way you get fear out of your life, the way you destroy and obliterate fear is to fear the one who is ultimately worthy of it. God is good and he is for you. You can trust him not only with your natural life, but with your eternal one as well. When we learn to submit and surrender to this holy, righteous God who loves us and is for us, and to trust him completely with every outcome, We will have the right, healthy, godly kind of fear motivating our life, the fear of the Lord. This is the kind of fear that transforms, perfects, and sanctifies our love for him and for others, and that transforms us into vessels ready and waiting to be filled up and poured out for his kingdom for his people, and for his glory. My friends, it is my prayer that all of us learn what it means to develop a healthy, rightly aligned fear of the Lord that will do so much, so, so much to transform every part of our lives. So Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all the friends and family 
who are listening to this episode, episode 159 of That You May Know Him, Beginnings Part 23. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks for the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. May we all lay hold of it. And may we learn to fear you, Lord, in a healthy, right kind of way, to honor you as the one who is over everything, who is not just our creator, but our sustainer, our provider, the one who has already numbered our days and counted every hair on our heads. Lord, may we trust you fully with every outcome of our lives. And may those lives be laid down, surrendered to you for your purposes and for your glory. May we, Lord, honor you with the gift that you've given us of salvation and of life, of true life in the Son. And will you teach us what it means to value this life, to love this life more than anything else, to lose our lives in pursuit of the only life that we can never lose. Lord, allow us to walk and stay on your narrow road until we each reach that celestial city where you wait to greet us with open arms. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, and thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, please consider giving us a five-star review and telling your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and check out our website for tons of free biblically-based content like Bible studies, devotionals, articles, and Bible teachings. The That You May Know Him podcast is produced by That You May Know Him Ministries, Durham, North Carolina. You can visit our website at thatyoumayknowhim.com.